Hey, Rachel, what's the deal with Brew? I mean, he's brood, right? He should be alienating around the air ducts with a ray gun, but instead he's super polite, and I've never seen him try to parasitically impregnate someone. So what gives? Well, that's because he's a mutant brood, Miles. You know how Warlock is the only technarch who doesn't want to kill his father? It's the same basic deal. But he was super bloodthirsty for like a year. He ate a dinosaur. I remember that distinctly. Well, that was after he got shot in the head, and the brain damage sort of hard reset him to default brood behavior. Barring head injuries, Brew's a lover, not a fighter. Actually, I think he's more of a scholar than a lover, but the point stands. So how do you recover? Well, Dr. Xanatos Starblood abducted Brew from the Hellfire Academy. Wait, wait, wait. I thought he was at the Jean Grey school. Well, he is now. Again. And it's not like the Hellfire Academy was around for more than a few weeks. But anyway, Dr. Starblood abducted him while Brew was still feral. Only a Banff had snuck aboard the ship. You remember the Banffs, right? Yeah, yeah. Those little blue teleporting dudes of demonic extraction who got turned good via Nightcrawler's blood in heaven. Uh, Yeah, those guys. Anyway, Brew bit the Banff. Okay. And once he got its blood in his mouth, it opened some kind of gateway to the afterlife, at which point Nightcrawler, who was still dead at this point, convinced Brew to remember his true mellow vegetarian self. What? I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So last week, we talked about Ilyana Rasputin, magic, and all sorts of demony, time travely goodness. This week, we're going back into space for the Brood Saga. So the Brood Saga is kind of a milestone. Like, in the same way the Dark Phoenix Saga just sort of set the tone and shifted uh, the way the line was working for quite a while, the Brood Saga really does the same. It's not as critically acclaimed or as well-known, because honestly, nothing's as good as the Dark Phoenix Saga, but it's a pretty awesome story that I think gets overlooked way too often. You know, I will actually disagree with you on that. I love the Dark Phoenix Saga. I think it's a definitive and iconic story in a way that the Brood Saga isn't, but I think sheerly in terms of writing and quality, the Brood Saga is as good, if not better. The Dark Phoenix Saga is, in a lot of ways, the definitive story of sort of the first age, the first era of Claremont. By the time he hits the Brood Saga, he's a much better writer, and he's doing things narratively and in terms of character voice that I don't think he really could have accomplished earlier it changes the story tremendously. Yeah, that I will definitely agree with. I mean, when Claremont's X-Men first started, we basically had them defined by their sort of national origins, a personality trait or two, and their powers. And at this point, I mean, we know how a given character would react in a given situation. We know all about Colossus's nobility and lack of confidence in his youth, Storm's uh, immense nuance and complexity. Right. In the Dark Phoenix saga, those characters were really still emerging, both within the narrative and in terms of Claremont's voice. At this point, they've really fully crystallized which means that we see them in really different ways and they're used in really different ways. But I'm also talking about the way he writes, the way he paces issues. We've talked a lot about Claremont long game. This is the first time we really see him do a slow burn reveal. It's also one of the first times, if not the first time, that we see him shift from that angry, omniscient narrator to the first person. And it's where we see him stylistically make his first really big break from the sort of Lee Kirby Silver Age model. Yeah, it almost seems like early on when the captions are, here is what is actually going on, and the thought bubbles are, here's what's happening with the characters, that's more like uh, Claremont is telling us a story. We are an audience. He is putting the story in front of us. And now we get more inside the characters' heads. We don't have that narrator anymore, like you just mentioned. Instead, we're just discovering things as the characters do. We're a lot more immersed in the story. 
And that means that the characters' perspectives also define the story a lot more. We've got unreliable narrators for the first time and the capacity to do that. This is an important arc to me for another reason, too. Remember how you talked when we were doing the Dark Phoenix saga about how John Byrne is your definitive X artist, that when you picture the X-Men, you see them drawn by John Byrne? Totally, yeah. Well, this is the arc that introduces my definitive X artist, who's Paul Smith. I wish more people talked about him. Like, reading through these stories again, this guy is great. The way he draws Colossus in his non-metallic form, just the sort of structure of his face, the way that looks in my head, that is Paul Smith. That's not Byrne. That's totally Smith all the way, and that's not the only example of that. And for me, that's very much his Cyclops and his Shadowcat, or Kitty Pride, still Sprite at this point. He's just a phenomenal artist, and he brings a degree of expressiveness to X-Men that really none of his predecessors have had. I think in a way it looks a lot more like a superhero book. Like, I was looking at his layouts, and admittedly, the story we're about to talk about, the Brood Saga, is really, really out there in terms of the setting and in terms of the structure. But yeah, it feels a lot more otherworldly. It feels a lot more kind of uh, spandex and punching, but not in a bad way. Not in a way that makes me feel like I have to suspend my disbelief more. At the same time, though, it also feels much more naturalistic and much more human. He's very, very good with facial expressions. He's very, very good at having people look natural when they're interacting, not just standing in heroic poses and, you know, squaring off for every conversation. For me, when I think of the X-Men in my head, they're the X-Men as drawn by Paul Smith. Word. So another thing that changes here, in addition to Claremont's writing style, in addition to having a new regular artist who actually shows up partway through this storyline, is a fundamental change to the structure of the X-Men line, the introduction of a second ongoing series. Yeah, now we've seen some miniseries around this era, the Wolverine miniseries, the Magic miniseries we talked about last time. We've also seen a few standalone Marvel graphic novels, which are something that's coming out pretty frequently at this point. But at this point, we're about to see a comic book called The New Mutant Start. Now, this is a, another team. This is a much younger team. And this is the Xavier School seeming like a school again for the first time in ages. Can I talk for a second about how excited I am to get into The New Mutants? Uh, yeah, that's not just you. New Mutants was the first comic series that I ever made sure I had every single issue of. We did that in college. I remember just trolling around on eBay trying to find every last back issue. Oh, man. As depressing as that got toward the end of that series, because ugh, the end of New Mutants. But for years and years and years and years, it is arguably a stronger book than Uncanny X-Men. Oh, man, it's going to be so fun to get into. But first... Another fun story, the Brood Saga. Okay, so let's talk about when last we left our heroes. Wait, no, hang on, I got this. Previously on X-Men. We're talking about X-Men number 161 to 167. This is still in the early 80s right here. But this is really following up on the events of the last storyline that was more than a single issue, which was 154 to 157. That was the one where we first meet Deathbird. Well, we first the X-Men first meet Deathbird, I should say. She first appeared in Captain Marvel. That left Corsair on Earth and Xavier in a mysterious coma. It's also the story in which it's finally revealed publicly that Corsair is Havoc and Cyclops' dad. Over the course of the three one-shots that we've talked about for the last few weeks, the first rogue issue of X-Men, the Dracula story, the Limbo story, Professor Xavier in the background has been in a coma through all of that. And it's not directly addressed, but you get the feeling the X-Men are feeling pretty messed up about that, pretty nervous about their mentor, their father figure, being comatose for unknown reasons. Right. I think the last we saw of him, Oracle, who's a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard and a telepath, tried to get into his head, and he actually tried to co-opt her telepathy and use it to kill himself. I kind of feel like we should have gone into that more. I mean, if I were the X-Men, I would, you know, to be fair, if Dracula comes calling, you can't exactly ignore him. But this is kind of a big deal, right? I don't know. I feel like at this point, they're really used to Xavier faking his death a lot. So they've kind of come to take this stuff as red. So Xavier knows there's something foreign in his head. There's something going on, but he doesn't really know what. 
And what we're going to find out soon in this storyline, but the team won't actually know for a while, is that Xavier and Lalandra have both been infected with brood embryos. Alien consciousness is growing within their bodies. And right now, the team is still in Octopusheim, uh, Magneto's island base that they took over in X-Men 150. Who's on the team right now? Pretty much the same lineup we've had for a while. Cyclops, of course. Storm, who's still technically the team leader. Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and the often name-changing, often costume-changing, Sprite, Kitty Pride. Also, for all practical purposes, Carol Danvers is basically on the X-Men. She's not officially one of them, but she's going on adventures with them. She's fighting with them. She doesn't currently have a codename. She was Miss Marvel. She abandoned that codename after Rogue took away her memories and powers. Around Octopusheim, I'm never going to get sick of calling it that, we also have Ilyana Rasputin, Colossus's little sister. She's now 14, like we talked about last episode. She aged seven years in a hell dimension. Her life is pretty awful, although she seems to be adjusting relatively well. And we also have Lalandra, the Empress of the Shi'ar Empire, Moira McTaggart, Professor Xavier's old lover and current colleague, and Corsair, Cyclops' amazing 70s space pirate dad with his amazing 70s space pirate mustache. With all of this happening, we jump into the events of X-Men 161, the first issue of the Brood Saga, which is basically a prologue. Now, this one's kind of weird because you really have to read it with the Brood Saga because it's where everything gets started, but the bulk of the issue is actually dedicated to Xavier uh, flashing back to sort of one of his definitive origin stories. Which we are not going to talk about. We're going to be going into it in a lot of detail later. It is important. It's about Magneto and Gabriel Haller in Israel post-World War II, but it's not relevant to the Brood Saga, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to put that on the shelf until it becomes relevant again. The important part is that Professor Xavier is in a coma at the beginning of the issue, and after he has this flashback, finally, finally comes out of it, and the X-Men are, of course, overjoyed. Before that, though, we see some good character moments here. Cyclops is really freaking the hell out. He sort of snaps at Storm, they clash over leadership briefly, but he pretty quickly comes around and just says, hey, my bad, this is just a really hard thing to deal with. I feel like I get close to somebody and they disappear. I mean, it happened with my family, it happened with Jean. Xavier's the closest thing I had to a father, even though I met my real 70s space pirate dad, and Xavier may not be a 70s space pirate, but, you know, we've been hanging out for much longer. Well, and Cyclops and Corsair really still don't particularly get along at this point. They're still very much feeling out that territory, and they'll continue to for, well, years, honestly. So Xavier does wake up, and at that point, the X-Men are very, very happy, understandably. It's like, hey, bald dad is, is gonna be okay. We hope there's no greater context as to why he was unconscious for a while. I'm sure everything will be fine. But it's X-Men, so everything is very much not fine. So Cyclops and Storm here. Now, we've talked a lot about, I think in the last couple of episodes, how we love the friendship that they have. And this is another good example of that. You know, yes, they fight, they clash, but even when one of them is a jerk to the other, well, usually Cyclops being a jerk to be Storm, to be fair, that doesn't end that friendship. That doesn't even end the conversation necessarily. They, they are patient with each other. And here we see exactly that. This is a take on Cyclops that I really, really like. He is fucked up and he's really flawed. Also, at least for me, intensely relatable. And that's really true throughout the story, seeing the way he responds to the events of the Brood Saga. And really, in fact, I think a lot of the Brood Saga is playing very much off of the Dark Phoenix Saga, structurally and thematically. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget, since Cyclops was the character that carried over from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age, the main one that did, that his personality, as we know, it was really defined in the Claremont era. And I think it's especially defined around this time, the Dark Phoenix Saga, and then even more so now that Jean's not in the picture anymore, right here. 
Speaking of things we remember from the Dark Phoenix saga, the X-Men, minus X, who's still recovering, Ilyana, who's still kind of getting her sea legs post-limbo, head to Lalandra's fancy space yacht for a farewell banquet. Yeah, I love this part because they're all in their sort of uh, victorious formal garb. And Which they all is just, amazing. They all just look like space superheroes. Like, I expect them to form a Sentai team and start posing around and turn into a giant robot. I would read the hell out of that. It's not quite as fantastic as the Atlantean outfits that Cyclops and Lee run around in for a while, but well, it's pretty great. Nothing is. I mean, having a big octopus on your chest, you just cannot beat that even in space and the other person who does not come is corsair because while he is bros with Londra, his general take on the shiar is that they can fuck right off mad emperor deken did sort of murder the hell out of his wife and i can, and then you know he pressed the hell out of the other prisoners that corsair was a part of on their prison planet after yeah, and, you know enslaved him for years i can definitely see where corsair is coming from here all things considered he's being quite civil about the whole matter he's also being quite canny because as it turns out it's totally a trap yeah so all of a sudden Lalandra just sort of stops talking the same way Xavier did when he went comatose and the X-Men say what the hell and then they look around and they say oh that the hell because Deathbird has showed up with a bunch of brood and blows the place up yes I believe with a, a stun bomb of some sort I don't know. I mean, brood technology is it's like a plot bomb or a plot ray. If it would help the plot along, the brood slash Deathbird's rebels have probably built it. Yeah, stun bombs are kind of to the comics as knockout gases to the cartoon. And when next we see our heroes, things are really different. Wolverine is running through an alien planet on his own, fighting for his life out of nowhere. I love that it just drops you in in medias res. It kind of reminds me of the beginning of Days of Future Past when the reader is just sort of thrown like, wait, what did I miss? Did I miss an issue? What's happening here? And remember that thing we said earlier about Claremont getting how to do a slow burn reveal in this arc? That's what's happening here. The Brute Saga, I'd forgotten until I went back and reread it for this. It's really scary. Like, he's doing pretty classic horror for a while. Oh, it's terrifying. I mean, the X-Men are in this world they don't understand, partially imprisoned, partially brainwashed, with these developing embryos of aliens inside them that are going to burst out and kill them, and they know it's coming later on. And I was tense as hell reading this, even knowing how it turns out in the end. Like the Dark Phoenix Saga, it also really balances scope between the big epic stuff and the fact that they're fighting this space war. And they're really quiet and personal. And the way it jumps, God, this is the least appropriate analogy I've ever, maybe like second or third least appropriate I was going to say, I've that's saying a lot. Yeah, 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 the bar is high. But I keep on going back to Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Wait, wait, what? Just the very, very personal angle and small human progression. I don't even know why I keep on coming back to this, but I kind of stuck there. I'm really curious to see where you're going with this. Where am I going on this? Can, can, can I actually do this? Let me think. Okay, okay. In space or on long missions, they carried peculiar little odds and ends. Nightcrawler carried a sandalwood rosary. Until he was infected by the brood, Cyclops carried a spare visor and a letter from Jean Grey, who would not be waiting when he came home. Oh, God, seriously. Except for Wolverine, they all carried their scars. Wolverine carried the weight of his adamantium <laughs> skeleton, several lifetimes worth of lost memories, and cheap cigars that made him smell like tobacco and formaldehyde, even when they weren't lit. Okay, like two people in the universe are going to get that, but that I is awesome. I regret nothing. <laughs> okay, moving the, the hell queen on. The queen embryos they carried. <laughs> the, the next bestseller by Rachel Edden. No. So where did we leave off now? Okay, so Wolverine is on a strange planet. He's running and he's fighting for his life. He's in tremendous pain and he's trying to piece together what happened and the reader is sort of piecing it together along with him. Yeah, like exactly. And the fact that all the captions are Wolverine, not omniscient jerk narrator Claremont means we are just freaking lost. We don't know what's going on. Like, wait, alien world? Wolverine's like doubling over in agony every 10 seconds? What is happening? And something 
is messing with his senses in a way that goes way beyond illusion. He keeps on thinking he's somewhere else with Mariko Yoshida, his girlfriend, or with the X-Men on the Londra space yacht, then sort of half coming to fighting the brood or fighting these other monsters and animals in this extremely alien environment. Yeah, and he keeps also flashing back to these snippets of an award ceremony. It's like at the end of A New Hope, you know, everybody's getting medals and stuff, but it cuts back between that, everybody's all happy and wearing their fancy space superhero garb, and then there's like this big scary alien thing stabbing people in the chest, and he's trying to stop it, but he can't move. It's total nightmare logic. Plot twist. It was not actually an award ceremony. Everyone was getting implanted with brood embryos, which is the worst prize ever. Seriously, there's like first prize, second prize, and embryo prize. Don't ever win that. It's a bad plan. Oh, God. And he actually does eventually discover more of what's really happening, because as he wanders around, he sees Fang. Now, you may remember Fang as a member of the Imperial Guard, whose clothing Wolverine randomly stole when they were fighting on the moon. And that is literally the only notable thing about him. He's since been captured by the Brood, since he was, you know, allied with the Imperial Guard bad guys when the Imperial Guard split. They've implanted him with an embryo, and Wolverine watches as his skin boils off, and he turns into this big, scary bug reptile thing that just sort of bursts out of him. Man, Fang cannot catch a break. First, Wolverine steals his clothes on the moon, and then he turns into a brood. Um, Let's talk about the brood a little here, because I know for me, when they first showed up, I was just like, oh, okay, so it's basically the aliens from the alien movies, except they happen to have guns and talk a little bit. But it's way more than that. They're a really interesting mix of primitive and animalistic. They're very, very technologically advanced. They're very politically savvy. They are manipulating galactic politics and events for their own purposes, and they are absolutely and consciously ruthless. And I like that that's really something that develops over time, because when you first see them, they're super generic. I found this Dave Cockrum quote. He was the one that created them with Chris Claremont. We had Deathbird in this particular story, and Chris had written into the plot, Miscellaneous Alien Henchmen. So I had drawn Deathbird standing in this building under construction, and I just drew the most horrible-looking thing I could think of next to her. And that was it. I mean, that's all we knew about the Brood at that point, is that they were evil, creepy henchmen types. I feel really weird about the fact that we haven't written any StarCraft references into this episode. That's true. I mean, visually, they are straight-up Zerg. There is no question about that. They're sort or, of like... Or the Zerg, are they? Are they? But yeah, they're pretty much Hydralisks. They're, I would say, space Hydralisks, but I guess Hydralisks are inherently space Hydralisks. So we're going to see a lot more of the Brood throughout X-Men. They're introduced in this arc and the one that comes immediately before it, but they become some of the definitive X-Men rogues. In about 70 issues, they're actually going to come to Earth, and we're going to learn more, a lot more about them and see one of my favorite covers ever, which is Wolverine in sort of half-brood form, screaming. There will also be a fairly hilarious story called Brood Trouble in the Big Easy, which is exactly what it sounds like. The Brood actually infect the spirit of vengeance itself. Yeah, it's like Ghost Rider and Gambit and the Thieves Guild and the Assassin's Guild. It's so, so much neon. Oh my god. Oh, so much 90s mainly. How does the brood feel about pouches? Uh, Well, they don't wear any clothing. They may have pouches built in. That's what obviates their need for clothing. They were ready for the 90s. Humans are their pouches. Oh, that's actually really disturbing when you put it that way. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, Currently in continuity, the brood are pretty much wiped out after this uh, story called Annihilation. And the X-Men actually recently saved the species from extinction because they realized that the brood were natural predators for other worse species. And also because Bishop told them that the brood are actually not so bad in the future. That's very Doctor Who of them. In Age of Apocalypse, that's actually one of my favorite takes on the brood. So the whole point of Age of Apocalypse is Xavier wasn't around to found the X-Men and Magneto had to take over a little bit later. And in this, without the X-Men present, in this specific story, I believe, the brood end up taking over the Shi'ar Imperium almost completely. They infect Corsair and it's super sad and Cyclops has to kill him. Yeah, there's a horrible poignant reunion scene where he shows up back on Earth, meets up with Corsair and Havoc, and then immediately goes brood. Seriously, man. Timing. It's fairly terrible. So back in the story, as it turns out, 
The X-Men have all been infected with these brood parasites, but Wolverine has a healing factor. It's fighting the infestation and eventually successfully takes it out, although he's going to look really awesome and kind of reptilian for most of this story arc. Yeah, and that's actually how he got through the illusions when the rest of the X-Men didn't really. That's another one of the things I like about the brood is that shows that they're a lot smarter than you would think based on their appearance. They're able to create these elaborate fantasy worlds where everything is awesome and great just to keep their the hosts of their embryos docile until the embryos are able to, to hatch out of them. So I want to talk a little bit before we go forward about Wolverine as the focal character on this because, man, it is so good. This is how you do a good Wolverine story. Absolutely. Um, this reminds me a lot of uh, in the Hellfire Club story that comes right before the Dark Phoenix Saga or part of it, depending on how you count, when he's sort of cutting his way through a bunch of Hellfire goons coming up through the sewers and to, to ultimately save the X-Men. The difference here is that this is entirely from Wolverine's perspective. He's our lens onto the story, and it works really well. You talked about there being kind of three modes, three Wolverine modes, that there's Berserker Wolverine, there's Secret Agent Wolverine, and then there's the best there is at what he does Wolverine. And this is definitely mode three. This is the Wolverine who can think on his feet, who's really effective, just fighting to keep going, facing desperate odds. It's often been said that the X-Men are at their best when their backs are up against a wall, and that's especially true with Wolverine. That's when we see what makes Wolverine a badass, not just in a, yay, I'm a badass, I'm covered in knives kind of way, but genuinely a badass intellectually and psychologically as well as physically. That's when we see that Wolverine come out, and I have nothing bad to say about that. I complain about the modern version of Wolverine a lot. I've talked about oversaturation, and I think the other half of what gets me about modern Wolverine is that he's a lot more interesting when winning isn't a foregone conclusion for him. And this arc for really all of the X-Men, that's the case. I mean, the X-Men are losing for the majority of this arc. Like, things are not going well for them, Wolverine especially. Yeah, this is, this is a Kobayashi Maru story. The main conflict in this isn't how to win, it's in which way they're going to lose. Ch- choose your own crappy, crappy adventure. So, Wolverine is going to finally make his way back to Brood HQ and start to try to launch a rescue mission. And the first person who he reaches is Carol Danvers. Now, Carol Danvers, of course, she was a human whose DNA was mixed with Kree DNA. The Kree are an alien race in the Marvel Universe. She's recently had her mind mostly wiped and lost all of her powers thanks to Rogue, who's currently still a supervillain. So the Brood are fascinated by what's going on with her, like her mixed DNA and all of this weird potential that they see within her. And so the Brood scientists, because yes, the Brood have scientists, they're sort of poking and prodding her and experimenting on her and trying to see what they can do and what they can bring out in her. Which and what it, they can transform her into. And as it turns out, that's actually a really terrible idea because Wolverine busts her out, and from here on out, Carol Danvers is the most dangerous enemy the Brood will probably ever have. Oh, she is a consummate badass. She knows that they've somehow fundamentally altered her, and she doesn't know how, and Wolverine doesn't know how. He just knows that she smells like she's not human at all anymore. She basically goes, yeah, you know what? That can wait. Let's go kick some ass and rescue your teammates. Can we talk about how amazingly awesome Wolverine and Carol Danvers are as a team? Yeah, seriously. I mean, we'll see a little more of them uh, later in Uncanny X-Men. I want like a, a miniseries here. I want to see them in a movie together. Get Katie Sackhoff and Hugh Jackman. It'd be beautiful. Yeah, they're such a good pair because they're both sort of the hardline renegade loose cannon ex-military types who will go to any lengths to win in a fight. Like, they are both unbelievable scrappers. Man, has there ever actually been like a Wolverine and Captain Marvel or Ms. Marvel when she was team-up series or any really good arcs that are basically just the two of them kicking ass and taking names? Because I would read that so hard. Yeah, we'll actually definitely see some of that, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 issues of Uncanny, but it's it's coming and I'm really excited about reading it again and talking about it. It cannot come soon enough. Yep. 
As far as Claremont working with Carol Danvers, now we talked a couple episodes ago about how he did his best to, I guess, character de-assassinate her after what happened to her in Avengers number 200. He fixed an Avengers annual number 10. And this is more of that. He's really trying to redefine Carol Danvers as what she always should have been, which is unbreakable. And this arc is, I think, the climax of that. If you are reading the current Captain Marvel series and you're enjoying that take on Ms. Marvel, this is where that Carol Danvers starts in the Brood Saga in space, where she's a lead character and where she first becomes binary. Actually, the reverse is true, too. If you like the Brood Saga and you like the way Carol is in this, you should be reading the current Captain Marvel series because that's the Carol who's starring in it. Yeah, Kelly Sue DeConnick is doing a phenomenal job in that series, and the fan base, the Carol Corps, are some of my favorite people in the entire comics world. They're truly awesome. They are phenomenal. I really want them to hostily take over the rest of fandom and remake it in their image. Meanwhile... On Earth, you know, the X-Men are in space, having been captured by creepy, creepy aliens. And Xavier and Corsair and Havoc and Polaris and Moira McTaggart and Ilyana Rasputin are all hanging out. In Octopusheim. And Corsair uh, discovers that Lalandra and the X-Men have been kidnapped, because this is still very recent, and figures he's going to go rescue them, because of course he is. He is asked by one of the other characters whether he's going to bring Alex, Havoc, because Havoc is an immensely powerful mutant and, you know, is Cyclops' brother. And he says no. There are two reasons. The first is that it's really likely that whoever goes into space isn't going to come back. And he's sort of reluctant to wipe out the entire Summers family now that he knows that there's more of it than just him. And the other reason is just that Corsair is a killer. And he knows that Alex isn't, and he doesn't want to turn Alex into one. He doesn't want other people to have to be like him. And he knows that on this mission, there's probably going to be some killing. There's probably going to be a lot of killing. So Corsair goes off into space, and meanwhile, in space, Wolverine and Carol, they're rescuing the X-Men, and, you know, they have to break all the X-Men out of these fantasy worlds that they've been put in, these hallucinations that the Brood have created for them. But Wolverine, interestingly enough, he doesn't tell any of the X-Men about the Brood embryos. They don't know about them. They don't know what's going on. And he considers it a couple times, but he decides not to. Instead, he tries to basically talk them into going and taking down the Brood Queen in this massive last stand. And what it seems to me is, I mean, Wolverine is wrestling with preemptive survivor's guilt. At this point in the story, there is no question of the X-Men surviving this. As far as we know, as far as Wolverine knows... They are 100% doomed. But Wolverine himself, he's killed the brood embryo within him. His healing factor has killed it and destroyed it. So he theoretically could just say, peace out, guys. I'm going to go find the nearest spaceship back home and uh, smell you later. He doesn't want to do that. He knows he could survive, but he feels like he'd be betraying the only friends and family that he has these days by doing so. He's also trying and continually failing to come to terms with the idea that he's probably going to have to kill all of the rest of the X-Men as they start to transform. That's a rough place to be, and I totally get it. It may be kind of misguided that he's trying to find a way to go out in a blaze of glory with them, but I think it's also kind of admirable in a way. It's also kind of noble. It's a way for them to, as in the Dark Phoenix saga when faced with certain death, at least be able to go out on their own terms. Meanwhile, big space fight. So the X-Men have escaped, along with Lalandra and Carol Danvers, and they've escaped to Lalandra's sort of pleasure yacht kind of thing, which is really not a starfighter. Like, it it has very little in the way of armament. It's not designed for space combat. Meanwhile, the Brood are chasing them in rocket sharks. Let's just think about this for a moment. Rocket sharks. Now, we've seen the Brood before in these big space whales called the Akanti that they kind of take over and turn into spaceships. They also do it with star sharks. And man, I tell you, our you know our car is getting kind of old. We should consider a star shark. I saw a good used one down on Southeast 82nd. Um, you know, I think we could just get it checked out by an inspector. It could be really good. I really don't want to lobotomize our primary vehicle. I feel really ethically weird about that. Well, no, it's already lobotomized. It's a used star shark. It's like how if you're a vegetarian, you can eat chicken fingers that somebody else wasn't going to finish. It's like that. The brood carried ghosts, whether they knew it or not. The Star Sharks, the Akanti, 
maybe even their own. Wow. So the brood are going after the X-Men and the uh, their queen, the brood queen, is telling them not to kill the X-Men because, of course, the X-Men are hosts, each one for their own brood queen. And the justification of lethal force is an ongoing conversation in this. It's a theme that gets revisited by multiple characters in multiple situations in almost every issue of this story. Yeah, and here, so we see Colossus, who's, you know, at the laser turret, uh, Star Wars style, of the space yacht. He doesn't want to kill anyone, and Storm doesn't want to kill the spaceships because they're innocent. She doesn't like to kill at all, but them especially, she just doesn't feel right about doing that. And when she uses her powers through the spaceship, and inadvertently does so, because she's not good at controlling lightning in space, understandably, she's super broken up about it. It's not just because she's not good at controlling lightning in space, it's because... Her powers are off and she's off and she recognizes instinctually that there's something foreign and alien in her. But you know who is totally okay with killing Brood? That would be Carol Danvers, who gets a new name and a new costume and a new appearance and a new a lot of things right now in the middle of the space battle. Like maybe it's the stress of the battle, maybe it's just enough time has passed, but Carol all of a sudden kind of bursts into starry, starry flame. In what may be the single most badass magical girl transformation sequence of all time. And she becomes a character now called Binary. Basically what the Brood have done by messing with her Cree DNA and doing other crazy space science to her. They turned her into a star. She can tap into the power of a white hole. She is an immensely powerful cosmic being now, all of a sudden. And she just slices through the Brood Army. There's also a really, really great aside about Carol Danvers and how she's always dreamed of going to space. That's what propelled her Air Force career and those dreams of space and flight. And again, I just, every time I read through the Brood Saga, I keep going back to the fact that this just echoes so beautifully with the current Captain Marvel where she is in space and that is exploring those themes and her exploring those themes really on her own terms in a way that she wasn't here. I also want to point out that when her powers manifest, she also gets a brand new superhero costume. Like apparently if you have the power of a white hole, then you wear a cool white bikini and have bright red skin and can shoot lasers. It's a one piece. But yeah, Binary is awesome. This is going to be her identity for a good long time and she is now the X-Men's big gun. This was the first story I read that had Carol Danvers in it. Binary is sort of the default place I go back to as my definition of Carol Danvers as a superhero. And so seeing that transformation, seeing her come into that character is so rad. But even though Carol and the X-Men kick the brood's ass briefly, uh, all is not well because Storm, realizing what's up as far as there's a thing inside me that's not okay, she heads out. She grabs a shuttlecraft and just runs away. And Wolverine at this point comes clean about what's going on. Storm springs it up and Wolverine's like, yeah, guys, there's some stuff I haven't told you. Storm freaks out, leaves in an escape pod. Carol freaks out, but instead of taking an escape pod, she just leaves straight through the hull. And that doesn't really work so well for uh, the other people inside a spaceship when you're in space, but, you know, one cliffhanger later, they're fine. Also, it's really cool looking. This transition right here is important because between that and what happens next, we switch from Dave Cockrum and the other artists that have been working since John Byrne left to Paul Smith, who, Rachel, you were just talking about. Yeah, and this is such a good point for Paul Smith to come on because this is the point where the story gets deeply personal. Before it's been about this desperate fight, there's not really been time to stop and think. It was about Wolverine fighting to get loose on the brood planet. It was about the X-Men fighting this huge desperate battle in space. And now they've got a few minutes to come to terms with the fact they're going to turn into horrible alien creatures and die. And we also have some time to check in with the people on Earth, and we find out it's been weeks since the X-Men disappeared, and they're starting to give up hope of the X-Men ever coming back. Yeah, Xavier is thinking, you know, oh, oops, that's definitely the second group of X-Men I definitely sent off to die. He's basically given up on everything. Like, he's got Ilyana Rasputin there, but he's not bothering to train her or to find out what happened to her in Limbo. Well, and he's noticing stuff like, oh, you know, she's got these mental blocks that are more powerful than any telepath I've ever encountered, and I should probably look into that, but... 
Nah. But you know, I really feel for the guy. Like, how many times do you lose all of your children, essentially, and keep finding and new And your ones? hot space bird girlfriend. This is Xavier giving up, and it's legitimately pretty sad. And what finally snaps him out of it is a letter from Reed Richards about a young mutant who has mysteriously appeared. Yeah, now this is Shankoy Man, who uh, you may know as Karma, and we will know shortly as the first member of the New Mutants. But he says, you know, whatever, I'll let somebody else deal with it. And Moira basically says, fine, I'll contact Emma Frost or Magneto, because those are basically the other options, and otherwise she'll never learn to control her powers. And Xavier goes, oh, fine. I guess I'll go off and start a second ongoing series. Thanks, Moira. But it's actually really nice because, you know, they've known each other forever. They're dear, dear friends, but they've also been through some shit. And Moira knows exactly the buttons to press to turn Xavier into his best self. And I really, I really like seeing that. And this is an Xavier that I respect the hell out of. We talk about how he's a jerk a lot. He's also an amazingly ethical, good dude who's willing to dedicate his entire life. No, he is. He is a well-intentioned dude. He's a dude who tries to be ethical. How's that? Okay, well, I suppose that's fair. But the point is, yes, this is going to lead directly to the beginning of the New Mutants ongoing series, which starts out in the New Mutants graphic novel that we're going to be covering very shortly. But meanwhile, in space, so Storm has freaked out. She has flown away in an escape pod or a solo shuttle, and she goes and kills herself. Like, literally, she goes, she finds, I think, a nebula, uses her powers to blow herself up. Yeah, that's kind of her compromise with herself. It's the best thing she can think of to do because she wants to preserve all life, but if she lets this brood embryo live, then it's going to A, kill her, and B, have her powers and do terrible, terrible things to the entire universe. There's probably a side story somewhere in here about reproductive rights to be had by very, very loose allegory. I don't think we're going to go there today. The X-Men in the meantime, they're like, all right, fuck it. If we are going to die, then Wolverine, you know, that's a good plan. Let us declare war on the brood. Let us kill their queen. And at this point, it goes from horror story to a straight-up war story. They're also struggling to come to terms with what's basically their certain death. They know that this is their last mission, and then they are going to die, either by Wolverine's claws or in battle or whatever. So remember when we talked about X-Men 137? The last issue of the Dark Phoenix Saga. The best issue. On the eve of battle, it suddenly got very quiet, and there was this series of just personal moments with each of the members of the team. There's something in this issue that's very, very similar to that, but instead of solo, instead of looking at them one at a time, it's looking at them in pairs, in groups, and as a team as they're dealing with this. It's a very, very direct echo, enough that I think it must be deliberate. And it brings me back again to the ways in which the Brood Saga both references and kind of inverts the Dark Phoenix Saga, because the Dark Phoenix Saga is about the X-Men all coming together to fight what they know is a fundamentally futile battle, one that they're going to lose one way or another to save one member of their team. And the Brood Saga is almost a precise structural inversion of that. Yeah, and I think that the structure of this scene, as opposed to the one in the Dark Phoenix Saga, shows that, because in this, it's pairs of characters. It's their interaction. They're not just having lots and lots of thought bubbles. I mean, well, I guess some of them are. But here we see, for instance, Kitty and Colossus, and we see Nightcrawler and Wolverine. And I want to talk a little bit about those two scenes, because I think think they're really telling, and they're great for character development for these characters. And they're also just terrifically written scenes. So Kitty and Colossus, Kitty's story here is lost opportunity. She is a character who is all about being excited about what she's going to do when she grows up. She's a character who has been built up and whose life has been built up because she's 14 at this point as potential that's not quite yet realized and that she's now realizing is probably never going to be. And so she's talking to Colossus and she's saying, I wish I was older. And he says, I wish you were too. 
And it's pretty clear what they're talking about. She realizes, you know, she's had this crush on Colossus. She's seen so much potential of what they might be in the future once she wasn't a kid anymore. And it looks like it's going to be a little creepy with that. I wish you were too. And then she reaches up and kisses him and he's like, but you know what? No. And does the ethical grown-up asserting boundaries thing, which I really appreciate. Yeah, and he does it lovingly. He does it warmly. But, you know, the fact is he's not going to betray who he is and what he thinks is right just because they may be dying tomorrow. He wants them to both stay true to who they are even at the very end of things. And I love Colossus. We talk about how he's such a nice guy and I think that can make him sound like, you know, this boring white bread character. But the fact is he's just a good dude. He's like the kind of person I would want to to live up to, the kind of person I would want to spend time with just to like be better by being around him. You know, the word I keep on coming back to for Colossus isn't nice and it's not good. It's kind. And speaking of characters who are able to sort of cling to that and hold on to that humanity and compassion and be defined by it, let's talk about Nightcrawler. Yeah, so Wolverine's going by and he sees Nightcrawler praying. And we've seen Nightcrawler, you know, as somebody who believes in God, who's, it looks like, his Christian in the Dracula story, you know, that the cross works when he holds it up to Dracula. But this is the first time we've really seen him exercising any actual religion, any any ritual. And we're eventually going to find out that he's, he's a practicing, if slightly unconventional, Catholic. And Wolverine has also been established as somebody who's not even remotely religious. He's an atheist. He doesn't really see the point of any of it. But a lot's been made over the years of the Nightcrawler-Wolverine friendship. It's one of the great X-Men friendships, and I think it really, really is. Let's do a little bit of the dialogue here. Okay, so Nightcrawler says, I never realized how utterly inescapably alone you must be, with nothing to hold on to but yourself. More alone than I, despite my outra appearance, could ever be. And Wolverine replies, I ain't alone, bub. I got you. Come on, let's see if they got any brew on this bucket. Oh, man. And it's just such a perfect moment because, yeah, they're such different people, but they just like each other so much and they trust each other so much. And it's it's a really nice thing to see, you know, before they go off to their certain death, basically. Man, Nightcrawler and Wolverine getting beers in the face of certain death. See, again, Tim O'Brien moments. <laughs> True. We've seen glimpses of it forming. And here we're seeing what it's grown into, what it is. Meanwhile, the X-Men are gearing up for probably their last day in the universe, I would say on Earth, but, you know, space. And we cut over to Binary, who is basically, you know, since she left, which has been a little while ago, has been going and just freaking slaughtering the brood using her star powers. Yeah, she is wiping out a planet of brood and their starships and... and and Akanti, there's, there's an Akanti who's already been lobotomized, whom she basically mercy kills. Yeah, let's talk about the Akanti. So the Akanti are basically space whales. And when you first see them, you're like, hey, space whales, that's awesome. But now we start to learn a little bit about them and about their culture. Yeah, they have a culture. They're sentient. Their culture is highly spiritual, and it's based around a prophet singer, the spiritual and traditional core of their race. When it dies, it has to fly into or be propelled into a sun so its soul can be passed down to the new prophet singer and the race can continue. I really want to start a psychedelic prog metal band and just sing about the Akanti all the time. Are there not any Led Zeppelin songs about the Akanti? We need to go back in time and fix it if there aren't, because that would be beautiful. So there's this beautiful spiritual race, and the Brood, who are terrible, we should point out, as if you haven't noticed yet, infect the Akanti with his virus to sort of uh, hollow out their mind and just keep them with enough brain functions to keep living. And then they augment them with machinery and, like, chew out part of their insides to turn them into a spaceship, because it's way easier than making their own spaceships out of machinery. And the Akanti are at least vaguely conscious through all of this, and miserable and in continuous pain. It's like, goddamn, Brood, that's cold. That's yeah, just cold. Yeah, the Brood are not friendly guys. But yeah, so they do the same thing with Star Sharks, presumably. Thus, they do have a really badass-looking space fleet, but, you know, not so okay. Meanwhile, Storm, who we saw die, keeps showing up on Lalandra's yacht, but at different ages and with different versions of herself, just really briefly. So what's going on here? Is this a ghost? Are these just echoes and memories of her death? Are these more hallucinations based on the embryos? Nope. She has psychically merged with a baby Akanti. 
So yeah, you know, I was having a rough day and it turned out there was an alien parasite inside me. So I blew myself up in a nebula and then psychically merged with a baby space whale. And so that's where I am. How's things? You know, do you know where the monorail is? I got to meet a guy to the monorail. You know, this story, when we were talking about this episode, we were realizing this story is going to be mostly epic plot stuff and maybe not as funny, but I'd like to point out she died and psychically merged with a baby space whale. Not any baby space whale. This specifically is or should be a baby prophet singer, and it's the first one that's been born since the last prophet singer was killed. But it can't fully inherit that status because the last prophet singer is the foundation of the brood settlement on a nearby planet. It's not in a star. It's basically stuck there. Did I mention that whole psychedelic prog metal thing? Because, yeah, that. This is getting so bizarre so suddenly, and I love it, and I never want it to change. Oh, man, yeah, the Brood Saga is really, really trippy. So, yeah, the X-Men now have a plan. They're like, all right, well, we were trying to figure out how to do our last stand and punch a bunch of brood while effective and cathartic maybe wouldn't be very useful in the long term. Let's release the soul of the prophet singer into the sun so that the baby space whale can take its people into a new tomorrow. And if that's not a good last stand motivation, I don't know what is. I wish you'd written down that line so you could just repeat it word for word, because I feel like that's something that needs to be said twice. That's our episode title, that entire phrase. It'll be great. Absolutely not. So, yeah, they now have a plan. And so they're like, all right, let's do this. We may die tomorrow, but we're going to make this happen. So this is the X-Men, Lalandra. And Storm right now is mostly a hologram. Her body is gradually sort of regenerating in a pod inside the baby Akanti. But for all practical purposes, she's just coming along with them as a projection. So they come up with a plan and they beam down to the brood world. And Kitty makes a Star Trek joke because she is the best and a huge nerd. Oh, of course. And she's like, yeah, beam me down, Scotty. And Cyclops, whose name is Scott, of course, is like, wait, what? Either that or he's excited that he's found someone else who watches Star Trek. Yeah, I, my note in this outline just says, does Cyclops watch Star Trek? Does Discuss. Show your work. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go with yes. I, I think so. I can back this up, not from this chronology, but I know for a fact that X-Men Evolution Cyclops watches Star Trek because he makes a bunch of transporter jokes with Nightcrawler. <laughs> and also, you know, cool adventure space exploration stuff is his jam. So I'm, I'm on Team Cyclops probably watches Star Trek. Anyway, so yeah, they have their plan. They're going to go down there. Binary's going to do some stuff. The Star Jammers who just showed up are going to do some stuff. The X-Men are going to do some stuff and they're going to free this soul. Or are they? Because we get a brief window into the Brood Queen and she is having a psychic conversation with one of the implanted embryos, which reveals that it's already started to take control of one of the X-Men. We don't know which, but we know that there's basically a traitor. And it doesn't take too long for us to find out who that is, because Cyclops is just sort of starting to freak out and just be a total jerk, especially to Wolverine. You know, you want to quit, little man? Be my guest. That's my evil Cyclops voice. And so Wolverine is thinking to himself, what gives? He and I are sniping like we did in the old days when we hated each other's guts. And talk about role reversal. I'm supposed to be the psycho killer and him the boss, but he's scrapping like a berserker and leaving me to call the shots. And he ends up pulling off Cyclops' visor to reveal that, yeah, he's already started to turn into the brood yeah he's got these creepy like brood reptile eyes oh man it's it's super cool looking i want to go back and a quick aside because they're fighting on the planet surface and man paul smith is so good oh my god he's so good john byrne is amazing at making space look epic 
Paul Smith is really good at making space look weird. Yeah, it's this really crazy uh, sci-fi. The word I keep coming back to is psychedelic, but I think it really applies. Everything is just all colorful and strange and great. It's very fantastic planet. And also, it's also maybe more fantastic for the next men, the way it's drawn. Yeah, so the, the battle continues, not to you know belabor the whole point. Some X-Men fight some rude, basically, with Cyclops eventually captured. Kitty gets separated from them and discovers a little purple fire-breathing dragon who gets her out of a bind. I wonder if this dragon could be somehow significant. I wonder if this dragon is going to come back later and be awesome forever it's such a tease though because if you know about lockheed you're like i want to see more i want to see more i want to see more but no lockheed just shows up briefly is awesome and then disappears yeah, and for otherwise a it's time. like oh yeah cool random little purple dragon that also hates the brood and and just sort of flits along with her for a few pages i guess we'll probably never see him again but we will he's awesome he's lockheed he's gonna come back he's gonna stick around he's still around yeah so uh the x-men win the battle they do manage to get the uh, soul out of the dead akanti and on brood world the soul is sort of encapsulated in this weird sort of crystal chapel within the corpse of the Akanti and going into it cures them of the brood infestation and turns the brood queen who's running along with them at this point into crystal. So yay, they win, except they realize, wait a minute, the brood queen said there was another embryo on Earth. Professor Xavier's been comatose and acting kind of funny. Aw, crap. And Lalandra was infected before any of us were, which means they have to go back to Earth to take out Professor X. And they obviously can't use the trick they just used because that soul is destroyed. It's reincarnated. They head back to Earth um, in an issue that is overdramatically titled Goldilocks Syndrome. And I love this because it's a really dramatic sounding title that basically boils down to, oh, I guess the New Mutants live here now. But, you know, that's cool. Yeah, the New Mutants are there hanging out and watching, like, I don't know, Matlock or Magnum P.I. or something. And they're like, wait, who are these crazy people who are attacking it's our Magnum house? It's Magnum P.I. They all think he's hot. Oh, I love it. They, they talk about it at, at some length. It's pretty great. And yeah, so this is our first X-Men New Mutants crossover because their series has been going on for a couple issues now. And so the X-Men get in there, beat up the New Mutants. Uh, although the new mutants put up a good fight and get to Professor Xavier. But you missed the most important thing about this fight and this issue, and that is that Kitty Pride has yet another baffling new costume. Oh, yeah. It's like this hot pink, like aerobics it's like instructor. Yeah, it's like Elizabethan 80s workout wear. I think she keeps it for a couple issues. I don't remember off the top of my head. I'll look it up. But it is just stunning. I assume that whenever she's on a Shi'ar ship and she's not actively having to do sabotage or superhero stuff, she just spends the entire time playing dress up and coming up with new horrible costumes. It's pretty amazing. But yeah, the X-Men do find Professor Xavier and he promptly turns into a brood. Like he just sort of twists and metamorphoses and this brood bursts out of his corpse. And it's there's one moment when Kitty could have killed him and she hesitates for just a second. And he's like, yeah, you should have pulled the trigger and he transforms. And there's just enough of the professor left to ask them to kill him. After they beat the hell out of him in a big superhero battle. But Cyclops says, no, I'm not going to do it. I didn't have a chance to spare Jean and see if we could make it work. I have this chance and I am taking it. Starjammers, you have crazy medical technology with Sikorsky. Fix him. I don't care what it takes. Just fix him. The Starjammers do, in fact, have crazy medical technology, but they cannot fix him. He is too far gone. So what they decide they'll do instead is clone him. They will grow him a new human body. They will transfer his consciousness, which is a thing that presumably you can do with telepaths. And yeah, this kind of makes me wonder, like, okay, Corsair died years later and he just came back in the Cyclops limited series. Why didn't they do that with him? They haven't officially explained why they couldn't just do that. But I can think of a couple pretty decent justifications. The first of which is that Xavier is a telepath. 
his consciousness is fundamentally portable in ways that most people's aren't. So you can just sort of carry it around in a little suitcase? Right. The other is how he was killed, which may have some bearing on that, and how long he was dead. Because Xavier has effectively just died or is is even still dying when this is done. And Corsair is thoroughly and utterly killed and stays dead for a while before he's brought back. So it's possible that that complicates matters, too. The point is, if, if you need to rationalize this, you can. So you're saying that Xavier was only mostly dead? So anyway, at this point, it's really just kind of cleanup for this entire brood saga. We get a few character moments about Storm getting jealous about Kitty growing up and bonding with Colossus and Ilyana and forgetting about her. We get Cyclops and Corsair uh, themselves bonding and Corsair saying, hey, I did some research and my parents are still alive. You want to meet him? And, and there's this great panel of Cyclops just going, I have grandparents. He's so excited. He actually has somebody who's not dead or turned into a space pirate murderer. It's, it's great. It's really cute. And and actually, although I just realized that sets up Madeline Pryor, doesn't it? It surely does. And we'll oh, get to that later. Shit. You um, can't have nice things. But yeah, so and Cyclops is like, hey, can I come into space with you, Dad? And he says, sure, we'll see. And that actually won't happen until the current Cyclops series decades and decades later. Oh, that's so sad. And it, man, and it makes the conversation that like young all new Gene has with grown up Cyclops about how the kid version of him is off in space that much more poignant too it totally does damn oh that book is so good but anyway uh after that you know lalandra briefly yells at reed richards for sparing galactus in another storyline oh yeah man um she drops into the fantastic ford story where they've just spared galactus uses a holographic projector to project herself in full body armor to yell at them at the, in the middle of the night while they're in bed which I kind of love. You can do this stuff if you're the Empress. You kind of have to. And then, you know, we see the X-Men and the New Mutants formally meet. And Professor X says, and I'm glad we have this new team because now Kitty can join them. And she says, what? And then the storyline ends. And we'll get to the aftermath of that later. But for now, we have some questions. Uh, okay, so our first question, this is from Devin McCullen, who asks, is there any topic you've tried to use as an opening and found that it just didn't work? Sort of. The openings you may have noticed if you listen to them all have a pretty specific structure, and we look for subjects that can fit that structure. So the ideal cold open topic is something that's complicated, but can be explained briefly, if not necessarily coherently and simply, and that has layers of weird in it. So the the sort of standard escalation, at least of the end of a cold open is, you know, stuff that's convoluted, but comprehensible, stuff that's convoluted, but comprehensible, stuff that's getting a little bit weirder, and then a complete twist. And that's what triggers Miles's what? And so we look for things that can fit that or with descriptions that can fit that. We also try to find something that ties at least very tangentially to the episode we're going to do, but won't be explained in the episode. So like this week, we talked about Brew, who's a brood, but who doesn't show up in any of these stories and in fact doesn't come into continuity until much, much later. Last episode was magically on Rasputin, so we talked about Mikhail Rasputin, who is, again, a mess of continuity, but wasn't actually in in that story. He just had a connection to the main character. We always start with those things in mind, so it's less that we've tried to do cold opens that haven't worked than that we filter them going in based on those criteria. Okay, so Andy asks, are there any notable crossovers between X-Men, including the cosmic folks, Starjammers, Shi'ar, etc., and the rest of Cosmic Marvel? So, I mean, you'll see a lot of overlaps, like the Infinity Gauntlet, uh, the Infinity Crusade, uh, Secret Wars, that sort of thing. But if you're looking for the X-Men to really interact with a lot of big Cosmic Marvel stuff in a way that is both X-Men and mainstream Cosmic Marvel, there's a big storyline from not too many years ago that started out with the Uncanny X-Men story, The Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire, and continued with a miniseries called Kingbreaker, and then a line-wide series called War of Kings. And this basically, and uh, Emperor Vulcan, I believe, was also part of that. And this involves Vulcan, you know, the uh, late review 
reveal retcon brother of Cyclops and Havoc. For more on that, episode five, The Retcon That Walks Like a Man, where we go into Vulcan in excruciating detail. Um, but yeah, it's actually a really cool storyline. We see the Inhumans, we see the Imperial Guard, we see the Shi'ar, we see a team of X-Men that was outside the mainstream continuity at the time, like Havoc and Polaris and Rachel Summers and some other people. If you like your space opera, then I actually would recommend it. I think it's a pretty good story. If you don't like your space opera, stay far, far away from it. Well, and for a more recent example, The Trial of Jean Grey, which is a crossover between Guardians of the Galaxy and All New X-Men from earlier this year. Ah, very true as well. And really good. So Owl Jolson asks... Wolverine's famous for being the grumpiest lone, not actually a wolf there is, but one of my favorite things about him is the adamantium-strength BFF broship he has with Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler seems to be the one person out there who Wolverine busts out all the emotions for, from fearful concern to outright huggy joy. What's your take? How important do you feel this relationship is for both characters? I... I mean, I think you pretty much nailed it there, Al Jolson. As we talked about earlier in this episode, this is a friendship that you know gets its seed sown very early in Claremont's run and remains consistently there and present for a long time. I think for a lot of the X-Men, Nightcrawler is kind of the conscience of the team. He's this character who is hopeful and who is optimistic and fun and also just compassionate, even when everyone else can't quite grab a hold of that. And Wolverine tends to fall at the other end of the spectrum, but also be very conscious that he does. And so in a lot of ways, I think he kind of turns to Nightcrawler as his humanity, as the person who brings out, you know, his personhood. And similarly, in the opposite direction, Wolverine's this very blue-collar, rough-and-tumble, regular dude kind of guy, you know, claws and violence aside, and I think he kind of connects Nightcrawler to the less refined, more just kind of gritty day-to-day aspects of the world. I mean, they really both benefit from that relationship with one another. He also just takes Nightcrawler at face value in a way that not a lot of characters do when you're a character who is, you know, blue, furry, and fanged. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at welcometothatwholething.com. Check out our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for each episode. Those go up on Sundays, so if you're listening at Comics Alliance, check back then. Articles, fan art, and all sorts of glorious nonsense. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute and consider supporting our Patreon. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com and also to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. New episodes air at comicsalliance.com every Thursday and rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher on Sundays. And as of last week or two weeks ago, video reviews now go up every Friday. And we're doing just fine with them. So next week, we're going to be coming back and we've got a guest who I am super excited about, who we're going to be talking with about Hidden Gems of the Silver Age, X-Men that might have been, and the retcon of all retcons. Kurt Busick, we would have words with thee. (laughs) 